Philippians chapter 1, verse number 1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father, we're thankful for your word. Lord, this is your word. We, we know it to be so. It's holy. It's, uh, it's inspired. God breathed. It is... Uh, infallible, it is inerrant, it is perfect, it is true. And so, Father, I pray today that you would speak to us from it, that you would help us to have ears to hear. I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would take the words that come out of my mouth and apply them to the hearts of these your people, that they not hear anything I say, but only what you say, and that you would just speak to us today. Help me, Lord, to, to say what I ought to. Fill me with your Spirit. Forgive me of any sin or, or, or anything that, that would hinder my usefulness today. And just use this time. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I received the text not very long ago from, from an individual. And uh, the text said, Do you have any recommendations on books that I might read, uh, or that somebody might read, that has lost their joy? Well, the first thing I did when I got the text was pray for that person, because I've been there. Have you ever been there? You lost your joy. It's just not a good place. Maybe one time you rejoiced in your salvation, but you find it hard to work that joy up anymore. Maybe your walk with God feels increasingly mundane. Drudgery. We don't like to talk about that kind of thing with respect to our Christianity, because we all know it ought not to be the case. But our experience sometimes is different. And sometimes it feels more like a chore than a joy. And that's where I assumed this person was. And uh, based on their question anyway. So as I pondered, you know, how to reply to them, the first thing that came to my mind and the first thing I said back to them was, you need to go to the book of Philippians. And you need to read the book of Philippians in your Bible. I did share with them some other things as well. But that was the first place. Because nowhere in the Bible do we find this topic of joy and joyful Christian living more than we find it here in the book of Philippians. One commentator wrote, the letter to the Philippians is one of the most joyous books in the Bible. All the way through the letter, Paul speaks of inner joy, inner happiness, 16 times in four brief chapters. One of my favorite commentators that I quote from often from this pulpit is Warren Wiersbe. Warren Wiersbe just recently went home to be with the Lord just a month or so ago. But uh, he's very well known for a particular set of commentaries that he wrote, and they're called the B series because every single one of them is a two-word title that begins with the word B. For example, uh, let's see here. He, he, he wrote his commentary on Isaiah, and he called it Be Comforted. 
because comfort is a main theme in that book. His commentary on Nehemiah is be determined. On Job, it's be patient. When he chose his title for his commentary on Philippians, what do you suppose he chose? Be joyful. Be joyful. So for the next few weeks, I want to spend just a little bit of time uh, on this most joyful of New Testament books. I pray it helps us. If you're in that place where your Christianity has come to feel mundane, if you're in that place where you feel like you've lost your joy, I encourage you to try to be here for these, these studies because uh, I think it will help us a lot uh, to find that once again. Well, as is always true whenever we start a new study in a new book, I, I want to start with some background. So let's look, at the, let's look at some facts about this book. Let's look first of all at the city. This book was written to a group of people in a city called Philippi. The city of Philippi was named after Philip II of Macedon. He was the father of Alexander the Great. After the Ottoman conquest in the 14th century, the biblical city of, of, of Philippi was abandoned and today lies in ruins. You can still see the ruins of Philippi today, but it's no longer occupied. There is a modern city called Philippoi. I don't know why they changed the name, but they did. Philippoi, which is very close to it and is... Uh, uh, Pretty much what's left of, of that area. This is all in uh, East Macedonia or Greece. Philippi was a Roman colony, according to Acts chapter 16 and verse number 2. And so that means the residents were Roman citizens. Even though they weren't in Rome, they weren't in Italy. Nonetheless, because it was a colony, they had all the privileges of citizenship. And we'll see that that makes some sense. Uh, that helps, helps us to understand some of the things Paul will say to them as we get through here. He talks a little bit about citizenship which uh, in their case made a lot more sense. So that's a little bit about the city. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the church at Philippi. Paul visited this city on his second missionary journey. That was approximately 51 A.D. You can read about that visit if you want to. We won't do it this morning, but you can read about the visit and you can read about the beginnings of the church in Acts chapter 16. While he was in Philippi, a few important things happened. For example, he went down to pray along the uh, waterfront there, and he shared the gospel with Lydia, and she and her family were saved and baptized. A little bit after that, Paul was tossed into prison, and uh, as a result of being tossed into prison, he was tossed into prison for preaching the gospel and for his, for his testimony. Uh, while he was in there, the Philippian jailer was saved, along with all of his family. You didn't want to be a jailer that was uh, attached to the Apostle Paul. You didn't really want to be the one who had to guard the Apostle Paul unless you wanted to end up being saved. Well, those two main conversions, uh, from those two main conversions, uh, a church was born. And uh, it was the church at Philippi. Paul would visit it again more than once, Acts chapter 23 times at least. We, we see there that he visited this church again. Uh, but then uh, that had been about ten years ago. It's now ten years from the last time he has seen those folks. Um, when he wrote this letter. We know a few things about the, the, the people that made up that church. Uh, the people in the, in the church at Philippi were poor. We know that. We also know they were generous. Second Corinthians chapter 8 calls them out very specifically about being people who gave out of their poverty. And they were poor but generous. We also know that they were suffering persecution, at least to a certain extent. We see that if you jump down to verses 28 through 30 of chapter 1 here, you'll see that they were a suffering group of people. And another interesting thing about it is, is that women figured very, very prominently in the church at Philippi. It started with a woman, Lydia. And uh, some, uh, some women, a couple of them, in chapter 4, are singled out very specifically by name. Euodia and Syntyche are mentioned by now. Uh, to be sure, they were not being 
mentioned in a positive way. They were being rebuked just a little bit. But nonetheless, it seems to indicate that there was some prominence to women in, in this church. It was a church that had been very generous in their support of the Apostle Paul. They had sent money to him on several occasions. And as a matter of fact, this letter was actually, the letter of Philippians was actually Paul's thank you letter back to them for a gift of financial support that they had just sent him. One of the primary reasons for the letter was that acknowledgement of gratitude for gifts. And we'll see some other things about the church as we go on, but that's a little bit to get us started. So we looked at the city, we looked at the church, and let's look a little bit about the letter itself. Just some background about it. The author was who? Paul. Chapter 1 and verse number 1. Timothy is also mentioned there, but that's not to mention, that's not to say he was the co-author, and there's some reasons why in here we know he was not a co-author of this letter. It's just saying he was the companion of Paul. Paul was the author, Timothy was there with him. This is one of those places where nobody disputes what the Bible says about the authorship. Sometimes you've got liberal theologians who want to dispute that Paul wrote a particular thing. Nobody disputes that Paul wrote Philippians. It's, uh, I shouldn't say nobody. There's probably some idiot somewhere who does. But nobody with a brain disputes the fact that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. And there's all kinds of evidence of that. It was one of his prison epistles. He wrote this from an imprisonment. Apostle Paul was in prison two different times, according to the Bible, uh, at least two different times. Uh, and this particular one would have been written while he was imprisoned in Rome. Again, sometime between 60 and 64 A.D., so that's why I get the idea that this was 10 years after the founding of the church, which was back in 51 A.D. As mentioned earlier, the most prominent theme of this letter is joy. The word joy uh, is mentioned four different times. The word rejoice is mentioned eight different times. The word glad is mentioned three times. This is a happy letter. It's a joyous letter. This is a letter about rejoicing and the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. It also may be Paul's most affectionate letter. One man said, in no epistle does Paul use so warm expressions of love. He really cared about these folks. So let's notice, I just want to look at the first couple of verses this morning and, and, and notice how he got started with this letter. And so three things suggest that he did. First of all, he identified himself. Look at verse number one. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. If you read the New Testament very long, and you read the letters uh, from the Apostle Paul especially, you're going to notice this was very common in his letters. He referred to himself as a bondservant. He referred to himself as a slave. Now, setting aside the obvious fact that Jesus Christ excelled the Apostle Paul in every area, take Jesus out of the picture. I don't think you can find a human being that has ever walked on the face of the earth that could match the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was as giant of a man as has ever lived. He was, he was among the most educated of men the world has ever seen. He was among the world's most accomplished men, doing more in his lifetime than any man, living or dead, before or after him. He spread the gospel to every corner of the known world. He didn't, didn't do it all on his own, but he certainly was the uh, impetus behind it. He was among the world's most famous of men. He had a name and reputation that followed him and was known every corner of the world and even outside of the world. 
One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the seven sons of Sceva. Anybody remember that particular story? Let me just read it to you. It's only a few verses. It says that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, a Jewish high priest who did that. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And then, of course, he jumped on them and beat them up. But I just think that's hilarious. They weren't really saved. They were just using Paul's name, the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And even the demons knew who the apostle Paul was. He was one of the most well-known people in the world. He was among the bravest men the world has ever known. He went toe-to-toe and eyeball-to-eyeball with the kings and governors of his day. By any measure, the apostle Paul was a giant of a man. He could have referred to himself as such. He could have said, I am the great apostle. You should listen to me. But he didn't do that. None of those accolades or accomplishments changed the fact that in his mind, he was first and foremost who he was, what he was, because of Jesus Christ. The fact that he owed everything to Jesus. The fact that he was indebted to Jesus forever. Paul never let that thought get out of his mind. He was a slave to the one who had saved him. And it was that realization, really, that energized so much of what he did manage to accomplish. Imagine what you or I could do for the Lord if we really got a hold of that truth. Imagine, I am his. I belong to him. My every word, my every activity, his. Imagine. Think how different the entries would look in our calendars. Think how different... Our travel itinerary would be our, our daily routine, our priorities in life. If, 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 if you, if, if I, like Paul, really got hold of this truth, we are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thought. Well, Paul identified himself. Then the second thing he did was he identified his audience. Verse number one and two, Paul wrote to the saints and bishops and deacons who were in Philippi. Might be skip, it might be tempting to skip over that part. You might think that's a little bit boring, but you know we ought not. It's a very important verse. Verse number two to all, or verse number one to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. It's important because it describes for us what the early church looked like. Uh, what they, how they governed themselves, how they were organized. There are three words that are there used to describe it. The saints, the bishops, and the deacons. Now, those who have been saved out of a Catholic background are are no doubt, uh, they have in their mind somewhere a a completely different thinking about the word saint. And I'll just say as honestly as I can, it's the wrong thinking. It's, It's not a right thinking. In the Catholic tradition, the word has come to describe some elevated kind of a Christian. Some person who is unusually holy. One who is to be venerated. One who is to even be prayed to in the Catholic tradition. But that's not the teaching of the Bible. The Catholics teach that sainthood is something that is bestowed on a person after they have reached heaven. But that's not the teaching of the Bible. Paul was here writing to the saints where? In heaven? No. In Philippi, 
when we get to the book of Romans, or when we look at the book of Romans, and he wrote to, to the Romans, he, he said that he was writing to all, all who were in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, Romans 1. The word saint simply means one who is set apart. That's what the word means. Set apart from the world, set apart to God. It's simply another way of describing a Christian. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been born again, if you have been converted, if you are saved, then whether or not you want to admit it, you are a saint. I read a story one time about Dr. Harry Ironside. Dr. Harry Ironside uh, was, 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 in his day, you know, there was no plane travel, and he had to travel great distances by train. And one day he was on a four-day train trip across the country to get to a particular destination, and he found himself surrounded with a bunch of nuns while he was on this trip. And so, you know, they talked, and they, they got to know each other, and, and they, they enjoyed his conversations, and so he was sharing Bible studies with them and things like that. And uh, one day, the, the topic of saint came up, and he said, uh, uh, he was trying to describe to them what it was. He said, I can introduce you to a saint. They said, oh, I would, I would like that. I've never seen a saint. And he said, well, I can, I can show you a saint. Would you like to see a saint? And they said, yes. And he stood up, and he said, my name is Saint Harry. And I thought, you know what? My name is Saint Bill. And, and you know, Saint Jeff. I mean, we're all saints according to the Bible. Paul wrote to the saints, the believers in Philippi. He also wrote to the bishops. There's another word there that has taken on different meanings in different Christian traditions. But again, it's really a very simple word. The word bishop, it's it's synonymous with the word we use here a lot, elder. It's synonymous with the word we use here a lot, pastor. It basically is referring to all of those those words, they all mean the same thing. They all describe the same role or office. Whether you use the word elder, overseer, pastor, bishop, even ruler in the Bible, all those words describe what we in our church call an elder or pastor. Acts chapter 20 gives an example of this. From Miletus, he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Elders. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you Overseers, that's the word bishop, overseer. To shepherd, that's the word pastor, verb form of it, but it's the word pastor. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so all those words, elders, overseers, shepherds, all used to the same group of men because they all describe the exact same thing. So Paul wrote to the saints, he wrote to the bishops, the the leaders of the church, the ones who were tasked with the shepherding or pastoring of the flock. And finally, he wrote to the deacons. The deacons were that group of men, and I believe women, who had been set apart and given special service responsibilities in the church. We first find them mentioned in Acts chapter 6. I spent a little bit of time on, on these three words because it's important to see how the church was organized. From the very beginning, this is early on. This is 51 A.D. when it was. That's only, what, 30 years, 20 years after Jesus Christ was crucified. And this letter was only 10 years after that. And so at this extremely early point in its history, there was always this, already this clear organization to the church. Sometimes people wonder why FBC is organized the way it is. Why do we have our church government the way we do? Well, here it is. It's because we're trying to follow what the Bible says. And all you need to do is look at that verse. So Paul began by identifying himself. Then he identified his audience. And then he began the letter with a greeting, and that's in verse number two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This was a common greeting. If you read his other letters, you find out that he used this all the time, grace and peace. If I was to write a letter to you today, I probably would not start it that way. I would probably start it with dear whatever, because that's the way we do it. I have a rabbi brother-in-law, and whenever I get an email from him, it either starts or ends with the word shalom, because that's a very common thing with them. Shalom uh, meaning peace. But Paul almost always used the twin greeting of grace. Grace is such a great word in the Bible. Grace refers to the unmerited favor of God toward us. John Newton, of course, immortally sang about that. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Grace, unmerited favor. There is nothing you or I could ever do to earn the grace of God. Uh, Paul said to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. By its very definition, grace is a gift from God. Nothing we earn, something freely bestowed for no reason other than that God wants to do it. His grace is free. His grace is unmerited. It is unearnable. One man pointed out, uh, in one of the commentaries I, I was looking at, he said that everything is a result of grace. He said it was by grace that the worlds were hung in space and the earth was disposed for human life. It was by grace that the mountains were created and the world was filled with life. By grace, humans are made in God's image with every capacity fellowship with him. By grace, humans received the biblical revelation after the fall. By grace, God chose Israel for a special purpose in history. It was grace that sent the Lord Jesus to live a life that revealed the Father and to die for for human sin. Grace leads us to trust in Christ. Grace sent the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide. Grace has preserved the church through the centuries. Grace will bring forth the final resurrection, and grace will sustain us throughout eternity as we live in unbroken fellowship with God and grow in the knowledge of Him. Grace, a gift, unmerited, unearnable. And it's also unending. Grace is the gift that just keeps on giving. It never ends. God never runs out of grace. He never stops pouring His grace into the life of a believer. Paul wrote to the Roman believers that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. There's no end to it. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. So I wonder this morning, have you experienced God's grace? I wonder. He said grace to you and then peace. Grace and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the peace Paul spoke of here is not merely the cessation of conflict, as we would perhaps sometimes think of the word. It is indeed a wonderful thing to think that the hostilities between the United States and North Korea could possibly, possibly be coming to an end. That's an astonishing thing. I mean, I don't think any of us in this room, maybe Carl, can remember a time. Can remember a time when we were not at enmity with North Korea. Sorry, Carl, I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. I mean, we've always been at enmity with North Korea, and yet uh, it's, it's wonderful to think that there might be peace there. But that kind of cessation of conflict, you know, when a when a ceasefire occurs, when a truce is signed, when when the shooting stops, and when a war ends, we we think of peace. But that's really not what's being talked about here. It goes beyond that. Paul was saying that uh, he was describing the peace of God, peace from God, peace given by God, peace available to us solely because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Peace. 
It was promised by the angels when they announced his birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Goodwill to men. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He promised peace in some of his last words to his disciples before the cross. And then he reiterated that promise after the cross when he met with them and poured out that peace. The same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace. Now, we've learned before that there's really two aspects to the peace described in the Bible. It's, it can be referred to as the peace, as peace with God, and it can also be referred to as the peace of God. Two different things, and we find it referred to that way several places in the Bible. When we trust Christ, when we're saved, we immediately have peace with God. Paul said that in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We are no longer enemies. There is no longer adversity of any kind in our relationship with Him once we are saved. Peace with God is a state that once entered into never changes. Once you have peace with God, you will never lose it. You will never not have peace with God. The man, the woman, the boy, or the girl who has peace with God will never stand before God and be judged for their sin. That that whole... That whole uh, Enmity thing is gone. That whole adversity that existed between God and you because of sin, it's gone. The truce was signed in the blood of Jesus Christ and can never be revoked. The Christian lives in a state of peace with God forever. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have present tense, now and forever, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's that other thing, the peace of God. And the peace of God is not quite the same. Later in this letter, if you want to flip over to chapter 4, you'll see later in this letter, Paul wrote in uh, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. For lack of a better way to describe What I think this means, I would say that this peace of God is the feeling of peace, the experience of peace that accompanies the reality of it. We have, we have peace with God always, but sometimes we don't feel like it. Sometimes I don't feel like it. Sometimes other things lead us to feel the exact opposite of peace. Sometimes unconfessed sin in our life. Sometimes worry about circumstances of life. Sometimes the trials of life can interfere with our experience of peace. And so Paul told the Philippians to pray and seek God constantly in prayer so that they would continue to experience the peace of God. We'll talk about that a lot more when we get to chapter 4. So if you're a Christian, my friend, you have peace with God. You can mark that down. You can, you can, you, you can not doubt it. You may not always feel the peace of God. But you, uh, you have the peace with God. Well, one last thought I would say concerning these two words, grace and peace, and it's important that we see them. The order is important. You'll never see Paul talk about peace and grace. He doesn't talk about that. It's grace and peace. Because without grace, there is no peace. You will never have peace with God 
until you experience the grace of God and trust Him with your soul. So let me conclude with just a few questions this morning. First of all, I want want to ask a few questions of the saints, those of you who have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Think about all the things that Paul said in just these these two short verses. He said, first of all, that you are a bond servant of Christ. And so I would ask you, and I'm asking myself these same questions, are, are you acting like a bond servant of Christ? Does that knowledge energize you? Does it define you? Who of your acquaintances would describe you as such? What in your daily and weekly agenda would demonstrate that you are a bondservant of Jesus Christ? Oh, that more of us, and I, I'm, I'm talking to myself right now too, oh, that more of us would, would live like Paul in this area. Oh, that I could get my heart around that. I, I, you know, Paul reached his whole world for Christ. We struggle so much to reach even one or two. Just think what we could do if we would recognize we are bond servants. So are you acting like that? Some this morning might need to think about that. Paul said here that you are a saint. Saints are different from the world. That's what the, that's the definition of the world. They are set apart from sin, set apart from the world, set apart unto God. Saints are God's people. Saints are godly and not worldly. And so the question has to be, are you acting like that? Saints don't go places. They don't go places that the world approves. I mean, they go places that God approves. They don't base their decisions on what culture approves of. They base their decisions on what God says is good. They draw back from, they separate from those things God says are not okay. Saints are, are, are people who are set apart from the world, set apart to God. Is that you? Who of your friends would look at you and say that is true? Paul says you are a recipient of God's grace. When's the last time you said praise God for that? When's the last time that you you knelt before the Lord and said, I am so thankful for the grace of God? I mean, if we get our minds around it, what an amazing gift. Paul says you have peace with God. Have you thanked him for that later? He also says you can have the peace of God. Are you experiencing that? We'll talk about that more later. But you don't have to wait until we get to chapter 4 to talk about it. Pray and ask for it today if you're not. And then I guess one of the questions that I, that I would, would close with for the believers amongst us is, is, how's your joy? The whole reason that I wanted to do this is because of that text that I received earlier. The whole reason that I, I thought we would talk about this particular topic is, is, is an individual telling me that they, uh, they had lost their joy. Is that you? I want to encourage you if that's the case. Don't miss these. Don't miss these studies. Be here. Think about them. Pray about them. And to ask God to help you with that thing. And then just one last question, and with this I'm done. And this one's for the unbelievers who might be here today. If you've never trusted Christ, I just want to remind you, forgiveness can be yours. Salvation, eternal life, and peace can be yours. But only after you've accepted the grace that Jesus Christ offers from the cross. And so why don't you do that today? Why don't you trust Christ as your Savior today? Why don't you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today? Just like the Philippian jailer did. It started this whole thing. Believe and be saved. Well, Father, we're thankful for your word. I pray that this is helpful. And as we start this brief study in Philippians, I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts. I pray most of all, Lord, that it would result in joy. Uh, Lord, if that's the theme of this book, then I pray that we would uh, come out of this, 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 this whole 
study joyful, rejoicing. Lord, I know it's not an uncommon thing for us as Christians to get uh, down. It's not an uncommon thing for us to uh, feel uh, the drudgery that our, our faith can become if we allow it. Satan wants that for us, we know. And so, Lord, I pray if there are those here today who are just struggling with, with joy, lost their joy, I pray you'd restore it to them, and I pray this would be part of that process. I pray if there are Christians here today who uh, any of these other things have spoken to as we, as we sing in a moment, that they'll recognize they can come, they can step out, they can come and pray about these things, or they can do it right where they stand. And, Lord, I pray especially if there are unbelievers here who have never trusted you, who don't know for certain, don't know the, 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 they've not experienced the grace that you want to pour out into their life. pray you'd help them with that today. May they step out. May they come and let somebody know they want to, they want to pray about that. And let us pray with them and let them find you as their Savior. So, Lord, whatever the needs might be as we sing, as we wrap up our service, speak to hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.